What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we're going to be discussing two topics that are very hand-in-hand type of topics. The first one is we're going to be talking about Jenna Ellis. I didn't do a video over this story, but this story continues to kind of like boggle a lot of people's minds. Um, Jenna Ellis is a vehement anti-Christian nationalist of the Michael O'Fallon variety, if I had to, you know, credit in give credit to someone for being that influence on her. And we're also going to talk about a study that was done by neighborly faith on Christian nationalism, answering some questions like how many Christian nationalists are there? What do they believe? What makes them different from, you know, sympathizers or other types of people out there and their religious views. And we're going to be talking about that study because it's a treasure trove. But it's also deeply flawed in a lot of its assumptions and analysis. So we're going to talk about this. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting. I do have some video to show of that. But we have a lot of uh, data that we're going to be mining in tonight's uh, live stream. So we'll be accepting chat. We'll be interacting with chat quite a bit. I see some familiar people already in the chat. So that's good to see. All right, Anthony, how are you? All is well. Done for the Done working for the year. So... Nothing says uh, peace of mind like not having to work for the rest of the year. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been in that uh, boat for about a week now, and that's nice. But I've been working on other things like projects that I, you know, that are soon to be announced. So, with that said, um, this I, I think is pretty. How, how closely have you been following the Jenna Ellis thing? I mean, I pretty much know that she's been very cringe of late since she basically said i'm gonna raise two hundred thousand dollars to fight for truth and then you cave the next like at, at within cave, two months i think yeah within yeah a couple of months you, after raising a bunch of money and then trying to say that your lawyers scammed you which they probably didn't because they probably have to retain their retainer fee because they're Wait, still she the lawyers scammed her well didn't she say that she blew through two hundred thousand dollars in legal fees which, uh, okay, so she but, didn't say that they scammed her. She said it was a legitimate expense, maybe? Well, I mean, I imagine that's her retainer, which means they're keeping her retainer as long as she's, like, in need of legal services. And I, I would trial, agree but, with that she might not be done needing legal services. But at the same time, you defrauded people by saying that you were right. going to fight. Which is completely legal uh, in, in the crowdfunding world to use this money. And the crowdfunding page itself said that you know your donation does not entitle you to a say in how this case is handled by the legal representation um so the people who gave money to that yeah that you got you know ripped off uh you were buying into someone who said that they were going to fight for truth and then pled guilty to lying and i don't really have respect for that that's to me, dishonorable behavior. And I know that obviously she's been getting into Twitter fights with, you know, people we would consider friends on our end. No enemies on the right, right? Pretty much. And then, of course, and then the satanic statue stuff happened. So, I mean, she it's been a downward trajectory since August. 
Uh, I, I might have to disagree because I never liked Jen Ellis. No. I never liked her. I don't respect her as a lawyer. And I never have. Like, you were on Trump's election team, legal team, like, for the election lawsuits. You know why you were on that? Because you weren't good at your job. If you were really good at your job, you would have been on Trump's impeachment trial law law team where he had the dream team. He was assembling an all-star team of trial attorneys. Oh, and Trump's got the dream team for his New Hold York on. case. We're going to talk about that in a second, okay? I, I do want to bring up, what what is her name? Al, Alina Haba or whatever? Or Alina Haba Haba, but... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, let let's uh, actually. I, I mean, I, I want to talk about her right now, but I'm going to make this point first and not get distracted on that rabbit trail. But so Jenna Ellis was on that team. Rudy Giuliani was, I believe, was the head of that team. But they did such an abysmal job. They didn't, and they screwed the American people at the end of the day. So because she was on that team, I don't respect her as a lawyer, and I don't think I ever will. She was hired by the Thomas More Society to be the head legal representation for the Grace Community Church case, John MacArthur's church, against the state of California. Now, the timing of that case is exactly why it succeeded the way that it did. Uh, because the Supreme Court ruled like a month prior to their settlement or very close in close succession with the settlement in a church's favor against the government for a lockdown. So there was a window of time where Grace Community Church could settle with the state of California and freaking make bank. And they did that. And that window is now shut. So Grace Community Church got their payout in the proper window. But I believe it's Cal Calvary, Calvary Chapel. Santa yeah, Calvary Chapel, San uh, Jose. San Jose? Yes. I keep wanting to say Chino Hills, but I think that's Jack Hibbs Church. And no, it's, you're right. San Jose is it not Chino Hills. Um, so yes, so Calvary Chapel San Jose did not get so lucky um, as John MacArthur's church because the window had shut on so how they're close dealing, they're dealing with federal with Supreme Court. I think they're dealing with uh, state and local. So they're dealing with multiple different people that want to find them. So so did Grace Community Church, because yeah. I believe out of the $800,000, half of it was state, half of it was local. I believe that's how that settlement worked. So, um, yeah, those are some of my thoughts on uh, Jenna Ellis. Don't respect her as a lawyer. Don't would not want her representing me. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if she's setting off a habit of Trump is picking attorneys by their looks. But that's now where we can get into was Alina Haba. Haba Haba, right? No. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's like. You just listen to her, and it is very clear that Trump did not choose this legal representation um, for anything, you know, for her personality. Because I, I think, um, was it she? She basically talked about a lawsuit that didn't exist, and they won it by, or they're they're fighting for you by paying the fine that they were given, rather than fighting it. I, I don't know, but she's. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Paul summarizes it well. Alina's eye candy, but is she a good lawyer? And didn't Trump have the issue where his lawyers didn't check a box for a uh, trial by jury? 
And I don't know if that's her. I don't know if that was her mess up or some other lawyers mess up, but I'm just saying, uh, I don't think it looks good. And to be honest, uh, Trump is seen more with his lawyer than his wife. And I'm not talking about inside of a courtroom. I mean, at social events. And that's weird. I mean, Johnny Depp ended up dating his lawyer uh, from that from the Amber Heard trial. But a much better lawyer. A much better lawyer, though. So there's that. So now that we got that indulgence out of the way. Um, so that that's my flashback on me never really liking Jenna Ellis. And then her political analysis is very shoddy. Uh you know, the idea that DeSantis can't go after Disney. So she was offering Disney legal counsel. Oh, as old... Doesn't have like a, an army of lawyers. Yeah, but, I mean... uh, she was offering Disney legal counsel and she still stands by that. And then now she's, you know, basically going to be offering Satan legal counsel in his uh, statute defa- de- desecration lawsuit if he wants to mount one. Maybe she'll get a job at the ERLC. But Maybe. I mean, it just goes to show that conservative grift industry doesn't have a lot of talented lawyers. I mean, you got him, you got uh, the guy down, uh, Lynn, what is it, Lynn Wood? Lynn Wood. Uh, I think there's a John Chris that's also like one of the bigger ones. It's just like, wow, we, we need better lawyers on our side as far as like. Now, the dude representing uh, Michael Cassidy is pretty solid, by so it seems. Yeah, but he, I, I mean, he's, he's a local. Well known. Uh, no, he's not local. He's not he, Iowa. Uh, he's a well known conservative attorney. Uh, so he he's one of those. Um, so you love to see that. But we don't have enough famous lawyers on our side, and certainly not enough good ones. I don't, I don't know if it's whether, you know, if you, at first you can't succeed in law, you know, go conservative or go conservative talk show host <laughs> or, Oh man, many such cases. Like how many lawyers or how many conservative talk radio hosts have law degrees? Many such cases, you know, Ben Shapiro, I believe Mark Levin. Uh, there, there's a lot. I want to say Larry Elder as well, but I'm not quite certain. So th- there's a lot of that. So this is kind of a thing. And my kind of read on female lawyers is that, or people that are female that have law degrees is that, and I, I know one exception personally, they don't know how to choose battles. It is not something they know how to do. They don't know how to pick and choose a battle based on prudence, based on, you know, winability. And I think that shows with Jenna Ellis and she wants to, you know, believe herself to be a principled person, but um, it turns out that because both sides, both sides are going after you because you're inconsistent in your principles. And that's typically how it works. You're not, I'm the reasonable person in the middle. That doesn't exist. It's you're attacked by one side because you're not adhering to the principles of either good or evil. You know, that that's why the left doesn't, you know, has like a no enemies to the left thing. And they attack people to the right because, hey, you're willing to go, you know, 68% evil, but why not 
up that 1%. You know, why not? Or people on the right is basically more of a, you know, you want it. And, and that's the huge problem in conservative media is you got a bunch of people that left the left and now are granted prominent spaces in conservative media. I mean, if you just despite the at, fact that they aren't that they aren't conservative. I mean, look, look at TP USA's lineup this past week for their America Fest. Does that James, include Rob Smith? I think he was there. He wasn't a prominent speaker. If he was, or maybe he might have been on a panel. But yes, he's facing Casey's a hate crime right now. Yeah. Um. Because I mean, and know, it wasn't even a crime as alleged. It's like, but you're calling it a hate crime, and he's saying Jesse Smollett faked a hate crime. I experienced a hate crime. It's like, dude, you didn't experience a crime. First of all, no, and I like how all, he's like. Where were the lies? He's like, these conservative Christians are infiltrating the movement. Said the guy that wrote a book about gays in the military and was opposed to bathroom bills in North Carolina. But, I mean, you had James Lindsay, you had Tulsi Gabbard, Tim Pool. Like, we can just go down. Tim Pool is just a massive grifter at this point. I think it shows. I mean, we can um, just go down the list and it's like, okay, cool. all these speakers that aren't really conservative. And yeah, you have plenty of them that are like, like um, of course, I think Larry Elder was there too, but a lot of people that you Ted know, Cruz way past his prime. Yeah. So, uh, well, so that's a thing in conservative media um, where people attack those on their right because they're really just kind of infiltrating. They don't really have business in conservative media. They just can't really make it anymore with their current views, honestly, in liberal media. So you see a lot of that in the right media um, is the overall point that I was trying to make. And Jenna Ellis, I don't think she was ever, she obviously wasn't ever in left media, liberal media, but at the end of the day, she is indoctrinated by, liberal law schools and they're all liberal they all teach you know stare decisis they all teach that you know the constitution as written was meant to apply the bill of rights to the states and you see that in her thing but at the end of the day she's not a originalist or a constitutionalist like she claims because she doesn't actually believe in the constitution as it was originally written she believes in the Constitution as Earl Warren rewrote and reinterpreted the Constitution. And Earl Warren was a Supreme Court justice, a very influential one in the middle 20th century for those who are unaware. So uh, your thoughts on that? I mean, it's funny because I think she cited like the lemon test or whatever about religious neutrality, which... The Supreme Court has spent decades. That is like 1992, right? The yeah, but the test. Supreme Court has spent decades kind of peeling back any so-called tests that have been implemented by the court. Uh, like Miranda has pretty much been erased as a precedent by subsequent court decisions that would have been done by uh, Rehnquist. And ironically, Ted Cruz talks about that in his book, uh, One Vote Away. How like Miranda writes, that's been more or less reduced. Uh, the Lemon test has been reduced. Obviously, Roe and Casey have been overturned as precedent. So, I mean, the idea that the courts aren't shifting in a certain direction. And, of course, the statue case in Maryland won at the Supreme Court, I think. The late, what is it, 
it's not what yeah because there's like some cross statue that was on a highway yeah something like that like an american legion christian statue or a cross statue but so the idea that the courts aren't shifting and, and of course the prayer case with the high school coach so the idea that the courts aren't favorable towards this direction right now is ludicrous and it just shows you how she's not paying attention to what the courts are actually saying about the law you know it's kind of like, you know you believe that you know these trials are you know legal not political let's face it the supreme court is and i would argue always has been a political institution it is not a legal institution as much at least on the supreme court cases that actually matter you know to the average person you know it, it, let's not pretend like the reason why roe v wade was instituted and then subsequently overturned was compelling legal argument it was these justices are pro-life and these justices are pro-abortion. That's really what it was at the end of the day. Uh, so I, I don't think we should pretend otherwise. And that's my thoughts on that. And I think Jenna Ellis still does. And it, to me, it's an insufficient worldview. So. Uh, I saw a lot of uh, chat. Uh, let's see. Okay, so Paul says that Tr Johnny Depp didn't actually date his lawyer. I think he dated really. his UK lawyer, not his American, not the uh, pretty American lawyer from, I guess that would have been. I, I didn't think it was the lawyer that we all. It wasn't like, the, it was. yeah, it wasn't her. It was, I think it was his UK lawyer he dated. And then, yeah, he, he follows that up as Trump shouldn't have Alina accompany him. Uh, to an MMA fight, but I doubt Trump's fight uh, wife would have been interested in the event. I don't know because Trump goes to a lot of UFC events, so I'd like to see like the history on that. But at the same time, you're going with another woman, shady. Um, but at the same time, I think the last time I saw Trump and Melania together was at a funeral. I believe it was the first, uh, the Carter first lady who yeah. died recently. So you don't see them out in, in public a whole lot, but that I believe is the last time was a funeral, which, you know, if you're in an established, well-established family kind of happens a lot, you know, even when uh, Tony and Kamala Soprano were on the rocks, they still attended funerals together, right? Something like that. Someone's always getting shot. So. Uh, there's a lot of funerals in the Sopranos. So uh, with that said, so those are my thoughts on that. I, I did share a lot of thoughts over the weekend in an article that I wrote that dealt with, to me, you know, part of it was, you know, I don't like her and, and it just shows every single time. And she tried to ask a poll question on whether if it was a Muslim statue, if it was a statue of Allah would it be would we support it being torn down so can you walk me through that got, brain dead and they got ratioed that they would that they killed like people at the charlie higbo thing because of a Muslim islamic cartoon of muhammad not allah yeah. <laughs> so it that was the that was one of the most brain dead lines of questioning i've ever seen and she's like you're missing the point and then she wants to lecture other people about knowing about religion so i i think i'm going to pull up some tweets um but 
I don't know if you're familiar with the Jolly Awards, which is like a in like a Twitter uh, poll. It's like a Twitter weekly award for like the most Christian nationalist derangement syndrome. Like you won this week. Uh, so here here's poll number one. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch to share screen mode here. So here's poll number one. Would you be cool with a Christian beheading a statue of Allah in the Iowa State Capitol? 68.5% said yes. Uh, 31.5% said no. 54,021 votes. And 3.7 million views. That's incredible engagement. Maybe this is all a scam for her to get like Twitter's meager uh, revenue sharing. I mean, I like her response. According to CN's logic, Christians should tear down statues, altars to false gods. I mean, it goes further than that, than that because the Protestant reformers tore down statues of Jesus via the crucifix for being a second commandment violation. So, I mean. I mean, the problem is she's trying to make a consistency where one does not necessarily have to exist. Because first of all, are we going to recognize, say, Islam and Satanism as two equal on equal footing? Do we have to recognize them on equal footing? The answer is no. Second of all, what is more prudent? Because let's face it, it was not prudent for Paul to be going and vandalizing idols in ancient Greece. But I mean, his success, but those that came after those, Paul exactly, that, which you know, they be, would do that because it was prudent for them to do that. There's a time and a season for it sometimes. And the Bible commends examples who do tear down the idols. Every good king in the Old Testament, you know, whether basically of Judah, I don't think there's any good kings of Israel, uh, but everyone that was good was one who tore down the Baal and the Astra poles in the high places. So they had to do both to be called good in the sight of the Lord. Uh, or at least great. And maybe some were good, but they did one, but not the other. And it would say, but they did not tear down the high places. So the Bible clearly gives commendations for political leaders who go after idolatry. That is a clear commendation. But there's no application in Jenna Ellis's view or a lot of people's view of how to apply that in our time. So, I mean, part of it, I think, just comes down to the fact that a lot of people don't view the Old Testament as part of church history. They just view it as completely separate. You know, this you know part, well, a lot of this comes from dispensationalism as a construct. But the idea, but if you look at any most, if not all the reformers or even just anyone through church history, even the Catholics, when they're making these horrible arguments to justify their various practices, they're pulling like random gay couples. Oh, probably not that one, but they're taking old the Old Testament and they're treating the Old Testament as if it's part of church history. They're treating the Levitical priesthood as if it's the precursor to the current well, in the Reformation within the current priesthood or the current pastorate. So the idea that the Old Testament is not part of church history, I think, is a lot of has caused a lot of problems with, I guess, modern political theology that. They don't, which is completely disconnected from church history, 
a lot of the, you know, anyone throughout maturity, well, anyone prior to 1800 who would have viewed the Old Testament as much as part of church history as even anything that came after the New Testament. So this is another uh, point. I mean, I made this point and it kind of went viral. The lying convicted criminal lawyer who was indoctrinated by liberal law school is going to lecture Christians on what we believe. And what she said that I was dunking Hunter for was a lot of you are completely illiterate on law, civics, religion, and logic, and it shows. But obviously, when you're asking about a statue to Allah, you don't get to lecture us on being illiterate on religion. And then, again, I would argue that Satanism and Islam are not on equal footing, even if they're both false religions. Are we going to give, you know, say someone wants to erect the statue of Adolf Hitler and start a Nazi cult? Are we going to give that equal footing to Christianity? No. Are we even going to give that equal footing to Islam? I don't think so. Or a statue of bin Laden or, or something. Or th there's so many things... Or, you know, let's use Jenna Ellis, actually. She believes that MAGA is a cult, right? Should they get the same religious protection that the church receives? She wouldn't. Or maybe she would. Because she doesn't really know what she believes at the end of the day. It's th these vague uh, notions of we have to support well, maybe the current system. A, maybe if they had a 501c or recognition from the irs then she would say yeah the trump cult can have its trump statue so there goes scientology for the win right but again was it a good thing that these were these organizations like scientology and the temple of satan were given uh tax exemption status was this a good thing was this adhering to the constitution that they were given such deference by the u.s government and the answer is no it's not a good thing. So this is, to me, pretty easy. I don't see the need. I don't see how this is like a two-hour debate type of thing or even a difficult subject that I think Ellis wants to treat it as. But nonetheless, I, mean, at, at the end I, mean, I think that's day, why she's getting dunks on so hardly. Well, at the end of the day, you have a bunch of people that are just that will ask, where are the men? Where are the men? Why won't someone do something about this? And it's just like, okay, Michael Cassidy does something. Those yeah. same people freak out. Yes. That's why. Like, I'm not entirely sure it's the same people, but we'll, we'll have to. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. It's a different set of people. The people you thought would be like, yes, cheering you on, or just like, why would you do something? And I have no problem using the, her mugshot in a meme. No, uh, I mean, it's a mugshot. With her uh, she doesn't own the video. She doesn't own the rights to it. So. She doesn't, but it's a meme, so it's transformative in nature. But I have no problem, you know, the idea of using this in, against her because to me it's fair game. Uh, part of my critique of her and her fundraising is I don't think she necessarily had to go up to Georgia. You live in Florida. You should have just said, hey, no, she, no, I gonna... thought she's Colorado. Uh, I think she lives in Florida. Um, but she could have just said, no, I'm not turning myself into Fulton County, Georgia. Y'all can come after me, but. I ain't going voluntarily and maybe cause a stink about it because those weren't federal charges. Those were state charges in a local jurisdiction in another state. So I don't, 
you know, as long as she doesn't get pulled over, uh, she's kind of in the clear in uh, most cases. And there's a long established precedent that states won't extradite for political reasons. Uh, the most notable one being death penalty that I want to say this came up during the Aaron Hernandez thing. I'm trying to come up with a higher profile example. Yeah, he was, but he had a Florida thing and what a Massachusetts conviction and they wouldn't extradite him to Florida because of the death penalty on a murder one charge. So states do that all the time, no, or not all the time, but as common as murder happens, um, this happens. The idea that states don't necessarily extradite on every single item or some states might not be willing to extradite uh, because they would have to pay for that. So if you have like a bench warrant in another state for driving while suspended or whatever, and you are like stopped by police in a different state, they're probably going to let you go after they confirm that the state doesn't want to extradite you because it's too much work and it's not worth the effort. I'm not sure that would have to go through the Georgia secretary of state, I believe. Um, not necessarily Fulton County, Georgia. So I think that would have been an interesting exercise for Jenna Ellis to have done. And she probably could have eked out the same deal if she failed uh, the way I see it. So I, I don't respect her. I, I just can't. So uh, anything else on the Jenna Ellis thing to that we haven't uh, covered? I think Jenna Ellis is a lot for the, you know, Christian nationalist derangement syndrome award this week. Uh, she was tweeting about how, you know, this has been exposed. Okay. Another thing she also, and I reported on this last Saturday, but it wasn't involving Jenna Ellis. It was involving the idea that, and this started from Janet, Janet Mefford, who's also, you know, pretty insane and unhinged that Ben Zizeloff, the guy who broke the story on Michael Cassidy is made up or coordinated with Michael Cassidy to have. Yeah. To get the photo op and all that. Yeah. Uh, to deface the statue. Like that was a media coordinated event by Ben Zizeloff and full disclosure. I have talked to Ben Zizeloff. We've um, basically uh, messaged each other to get each other to promote each other's content and stuff like that. So th there's your full disclosure, but uh, I, I think it's a really good reporter and I love this. I love what he's doing at the Sentinel. And even if the accusations against them were true, I wouldn't care. Cause first of all, where's the sin? I don't I mean, want to hear, and this is Janet Mefford's thing. And it's also kind of Jenna Ellis's thing. Just the issue is you're holding something that's not scripture up to scripture. Well, on e in Jenna Ellis's case, she believes that the Constitution is equal with Scripture. But even still, the Constitution, look look through your Supreme Court history. How many of those cases were court shopped, including Plessy versus Ferguson? That was a court shopping. It didn't work, work out in their fit in the favor of the train cars. But but I mean, a lot of Brown versus Board of Ed court shopped. Patent laws, patent lawyers court shop all the time. And of course, you know, Rosa Parks, you know, with the photo and all that, or Rosa Parks was, you know, selectively chosen. And along those lines, Janet Mefford values like journalistic ethical standards as equal with scripture, I would argue. And she's basically saying, 
you know, that it would have been a sin to have done so, not, or it was, you know, it's a fireable offense. And like, how? Like, so these people don't really, you know, believe that the Bible is the highest authority or final authority. You know, that that's what sola scriptura is supposed to mean. It doesn't mean that it's the only thing that's authoritative, but it is the highest standard and the highest authority. I mean, yeah, violating a professional ethics, ethical standard, which, again, I'll use that in quotes, is not necessarily. Yeah, because journalism to, ethics. Now, that's a joke. That's not tantamount to violating a commandment. No, it's not. And basically, that's what she, she's accused uh, Megan Basham of doing that. She's accused Ben Zeisloft of doing that. She doesn't like me very much. Uh, no, if you're on her radar, that's a good thing. Right? I am on her radar. <laughs> she does not like me very much. Uh, and the feeling's mutual. So, you know, I, people have told me things about her uh, and how she treats people and stuff like that. So, not exactly missing anything here. So, the next thing I wanted to talk about was neighborly faith. And they've come out with a study on Christian nationalism, trying to answer how many Christian nationalists are there. And I found this to be an interesting story to talk about. And it really segues well with the Jenna Ellis situation, because Jenna Ellis is. Uh, what's the best way to put it? She's an anti-Christian nationalist. These anti-Christian nationalists put out a study on Christian nationalism. So this is a good time to talk about it, I think. So I'm going to zoom in, uh, see if that works. So we have some uh, overlays to share. But let's first talk about the who who's actually doing the study. So Christian nationalism has been a resurging movement in Protestant Christianity. The rise has come at the expense of multiculturalism, neoconservatism, pluralism, and classical liberalism, which is a good way to summarize the aforementioned beliefs, uh, specifically pluralism and multiculturalism. But you notice that the Republicans who are neocons very much believe in classical liberalism and the whole Earl Warren is a founding father. Um, the rejection of the post-war consensus has found many Christians renewing an older Christian political theology under a new banner of Christian nationalism. So again, my contention would be that Christian nationalism is pretty much what Christians have naturally believed about Christianity and the civil arena. And I can basically point to examples in the fourth century prior to Constantine where this is well believed. So, and that's even before going into patristic writings. The other thing I can add that should be added is the notion that politics is a authoritarian versus democratic paradigm and that anything that's that's deemed authoritarian is inherently bad which is in total contradiction to the aristotelian idea that there's only three forms of government really six if you count the good and bad versions of each of the three types which would be oligarch which would be democracy or republic slash republic would be one oligarch oligarchy slash aristocracy, which would be two. Aristocracy is the positive version. Oligarchy is the bad version. And then there's monarchy versus like tyranny, which would be three. So there's only three forms of government. And generally, a lot of people throughout history have viewed aristocracy as the best form of government. 
And to finish my thought on that, because again, there's, you know, classical thinking, which might not be fully allowed in today's age, but Christian nationalism is a new name for what Christians have long believed. If you read Stephen Wolf's book, you've described it very well as it's basically what Calvin believed. Yeah. I mean, it's like the last chapter of his institutes that, that is basically transposed over 400 pages, obviously with more thinkers added to it, but. So a lot of, and that's going to be a major flaw in the uh, study that we're going to talk about is they don't necessarily assume that, but even in their, they did a uh, zoom call, which I infiltrated. Uh, so fun fact, I was in on that zoom call and I have some video of it just a tail end and it's not very good video, but you know, nonetheless, uh, we're going to get to that soon enough, but just to finish up this thought, this is put out by, you know, neighborly faith. And in the, in the video that call it, they did trying to explain and answer questions surrounding the study. They talk about how, uh, First of all, democracy is the end all be all. It's the best form. And therefore, Christian nationalism is a threat to that. And therefore, it's bad. And that's really their basis for saying that it's bad. And they say when Christianity tries to get use political power, bad things happen. And it's like the Crusades or, you know, insert, you know, Reddit tier argument or example. It's yeah, like, I actually down. think that. I actually think the first crusade was a pretty remarkable and well, you're boiling down hundreds yeah. of years of geopolitics <laughs> into one sentence talking points. Yeah, I know. I mean, here's the thing. Satan did not want the, the first crusade to succeed and he threw everything at the crusaders and they succeeded anyway. I, I think that's kind of your takeaway from the crusades or at least the first crusade, which is, you know, why we call them the crusades so my thoughts on that but that's their line of historical thinking you got some sort of anabaptist uh yet at the same time some sort of there was like a lutheran female pastor was also on the call you had dan darling on the call and dan darling you know he's a whore you know, he's the one taking Zuck bucks to get churches to become COVID jab sites. So this guy is like zero integrity. And then they had Ryan, uh, his name's listed in the article. At least I thought it was. Uh, his name's listed in the in the thing because he doesn't get credit because he didn't write the report, but he's very instrumental in the uh the actual report itself and the study I'm trying to pull up his name but uh ryan burge who's a statistics guy so he's probably someone who had a major influence on how this study went down uh i do have some uh spicy uh overlays the share of their findings because it's pretty interesting but i do want to show their video so this is their video and i apologize for the not great quality 
this is me trying to record a zoom call which apparently you can't do with a screen record you got to use a window record i don't know why but you can see everything i'm doing on the on the call held uh more power but again i would defer to experts from non-white christianity i think that's what I'll circle back to when we're looking to find solutions, when we're looking to find hope. I love this focus on hospitality. Um, we really need to look local. It can feel really overwhelming to look at the American political landscape right now. And it can feel really, really overwhelming when I talk to ordinary Christians and just it feels hopeless, it, especially with um, war in the Holy Land right now as we come up to Christ Christmas. Um, so I think the hope is to look local to again begin with that self examination where are we tied to power and we're pursuing power or institutional strength over helping our neighbor over self confession. Um, over this theology of the cross which reminds us that God's power is often made manifest in human weakness. Um, so that's a hopeful witness for the church and I know for all of us who are pastors sometimes of denominations that are struggling that's that's the hopeful place to go. Thank you so much, Angela. Uh, over to Dan. Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. I think I would say a couple of things. I would say sometimes some of the um, the kind of warnings we get every election year, and I've written them and and participated in, uh, and they're generally coded right of, you know, kind of send the message that the worst thing you could do is be involved politically as a as a as a as a Christian. I think sometimes it actually dampens involvement in the political process what i what i typically tell people i think most uh, when i read scripture you know if you think about the great commandment it's hard to obey the great commandment love your neighbors yourself and not in some level um you steward the small or big power you have to help advance human flourishing and so i think there is a call to be engaged in some way um i think it depends on calling and everyone has to you know ask themselves, what is my calling? I have friends that feel called to run for office. And I think that's a worthy and noble calling. Uh, they have to, by, ne by necessity, be more political. Um, and they need our prayers uh, for all that. Other people are called to be less, you know, in that sort of realm, but maybe they start a nonprofit in their community, or maybe they're helping tutor kids. So I think it depends on our calling, number one. And we sort of flatten it as if, the only way to engage is for everyone to be mad on Twitter all day. And, you know, there's, there's different callings. I don't know if anyone has that specific calling, but um, I also think um, it's about like what CS Lewis talks about in the four loves about ordering our loves. And one of the things I think we can do in this season is to say, it is, it's not just okay to love your country. It's good to love your country. If, if we as Christians see ourselves as exiles, as, as first Peter says, then we do listen to Jeremiah when he says to the exiles to seek the welfare of your city. And I don't know how we can seek the welfare of our city if we loathe our city, if we loathe our country, even though we acknowledge our deficits and our uh, historic wrongs. And so I think it's good and right, but it, it has to be in the right place. And uh, when we order those loves correctly, we become not only good Christians, but good citizens. Um, and so I think that really matters. But I do think it's okay and it's good and right for people to be involved. In the political process, I think when Christians are not involved in a, in a responsible way, it leaves a vacuum, uh, a moral vacuum, and I think, you know, our, our communities need it. And I guess the last thing I would say, maybe because it's Christmas, is that Jesus' words to the disciples uh, before he was to go to his death, 
he said, to be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And when we engage, we engage as people who are rightly concerned about what we see around us, but also hopeful because Christ has overcome the world. And um, we don't have to wring our hands in fear. Um, we can understand God has made us for this moment. And we can engage in a way that understands the limits of what we can do uh, as long as we're being uh, faithful and, and obedient. Thank you so much, Dan. Caitlin, over to you. So I, I wanted to pause right there. Um, so I here's where I missed out. We had a banger woke preacher clip when I was trying to start the recording. Like that Lutheran Prastrix was going full woke, and I just missed out on it by that much. Uh, and then Dan Darling gets up, and the first thing he does is basically apologize for being Southern Baptist. So that's embarrassing. So uh, you got any thoughts on the initial clip? I mean, it, it's kind of like what you would expect, you know. Well, you know, some people have the calling, some people don't, you know. But we got to – I mean, it's just very wishy-washy. I don't – like, there's not a whole lot of conviction or backbone there. And and obviously, you know, when he says that someone has the political calling, they're probably liberal or left-leaning, so – and he thinks that you can be, you know, a Democrat and a faithful Christian. That he does. Uh, I'm going to try and play this differently because when it's an overlay video on Restream, it doesn't let me talk over it or pause it. Uh, so I believe if I were to continue playing it, it would start from the beginning on Restream. But I pulled it up on my computer and I actually can play this just fine. So... Yes, and I'm using Windows Media Player for some stupid reason. Uh, but now you can see that I'm typing stuff and it's like, and I'm looking at the questions and answers and you'll see that anyone who asked, and I know someone else that was in this Zoom call as well, I got kicked out because I said that he, Dan Darling sucks for the COVID thing. So they kicked me out. So I had to get a temp email, a burner email to get back in so i don't know why we kick someone out when they can just do that really easily uh so they did that so i was sending questions in anonymously for that reason uh and they were answering the questions that weren't mine so you'll love to see that they they weren't really interested in discussion all that much so Is there sound? Are you serious? Are you not able to hear it? I'm not. Uh, is the audience able to hear it? Because. Okay, I'm getting sound in the audio. All right, I'm getting sound in the comment section. Is that right? So this is the problem with you know restream not letting me pause videos that are playing that I've uploaded. So no sound. Okay. Well, that's stupid. 
not much of a solution to that. But let's just say I asked two questions in this in this uh, question and answer section here. I asked, does the panel believe that pluralism is good or that an overtly Christian society is better? And I would say that they clearly believe that th that pluralism is better than an overtly Christian society. And what she, what the Angela person, or not the Angela, the uh, other lady, crazy lady, just said, was that most important thing I can do is like vote every four years or something like that. And the second question I asked is is christian nationalism better than transgendering kids now do you think that either of those questions got an answer and the answer is no they didn't no answer so that's where we're at with the uh dialogue on this but kevin singer at the end of the video basically says hey if you're media which, hey, um you can submit your questions and he gives an email and I asked him some questions. So here are the questions that I asked and here are the responses that he gave. I will not share the screen because it's, you know, emails and stuff. But I said, so I asked three questions and I'll give his answer corresponding uh, with the But question. you actually got an answer. I did get an answer. So as question one, as everyone on the panel was anti-Christian nationalist, how does this bias not seep into the study and create a halo horn effect on questioning? Pretty good question, right? Uh, pretty valid. Uh, and he had an answer for that. And his answer was, number one, uh, please look at the report and identify where in our methodology and questions you see bias. Happy to respond to specific instances in the report where you might see that, but the panelists don't necessarily reflect the views of NF. They're just independent thought leaders with relevant expertise providing comment on our data. So that's half true, uh, I would say. And now, again, I, I wouldn't say the, but, da the, the entirety, like, I don't think the data is as bad, that bad in the report. I actually think it's, it's interesting. It's useful. I think their, their analysis and conclusions are bad. And I think that's it's that's far worse than the data that they. Well, their definitions are bad. That too, which is kind of major. So if you're trying to define a term, an ideology, I wouldn't really call it an ideology as much. But if you're trying to define a term and people who adhere to a term, why are you not using their definition of the term, their understanding of the term? So. Oh, yeah. The, obviously that, that's my agenda. second question. There is an agenda. But the report that. is seeped with bias because it considers it a threat. Like the report is very biased. And just to, you know, kind of highlight the report, this report was written by Chris uh, Stockrunt, Stockrunt, my bad, I, I'm screwing up your name, um, Kevin Singer, who is in the panel, Peter Licari. I don't know if he was on the panel or not, uh, Sam. And then we have a special thanks to our research advisory board, Sam Abrams, Daniel Bennett, Ryan Burge. He was on the panel. Angela Danker on the panel. Mark David Hall, Brandon Polk, Kaylin Scheich. On the panel. Uh, on the panel. Uh, Desier Shaw and the Democracy Fund. 
which for again, their support. Now, the Democracy Fund is founded by. Let me pull up the article here because um, uh, I I don't want to screw up names of you know uh, people of Iranian background. Pierre Almidiar, the founder of eBay and a devout Buddhist. So yeah, you got someone who is all about the Dalai Lama. I mean, think of to him. say that Christian nationalism is bad or I mean, funding something that says Christian nationalism is bad. Think of him as like a lower tier Soros or Bill Gates, because that's what the Omidyar Foundation actually is, which that foundation funds the Democracy Fund. He also funds a bunch of – he actually funds super PACs just like George Soros. He swims in the same waters as open societies and – and the Aspen Institute, which again is also a, you know, a think tank that's more or less funded by all the bad people. So if you want, like this, like that's literally dark money. Yeah, and they're they're bragging about it, so or, or giving thanks to it. So that is definitely where you get in the report that it's very anti. Uh, you know, it's very pro democracy. Anything that questions democracy must therefore be bad or bad for society. And that's an overarching premise in the report. So that was the uh, first question and answer that Kevin gave me. The second one I thought was worse. So this is my question too. None of the Christian nationalist thought leaders, i.e. Stephen Wolf, William Wolf, Andrew Torba, have defined Christian nationalism in a way that's tied to America's existence. Such is a is the difference between definition and application. Do you believe that ignoring these definitions by using understandings from its opponents, such as Robert Jones and Amanda Tyler, hurt the study's ability to measure the group they are actively trying to study since their understanding is out of touch with said group? So that was question two. Any comments on that or pretty standard? Yeah. I mean, there are instances where certain opponents do and this would be like the one New York Times writer that, you know, this was over a year ago when I did the first Christian nat nationalist article where it was comparing her article, her definition to, um, what is it, Paul Miller, his his definition. But and it, he said he, his was worse. I thought hers was better, maybe a little bit more Americanized in context, but it was just like, yeah, these are, it's the type of people that want all these like abortion abolition, like. Because that's her, that's what a leftist journalist thinks is Christian nationalism is oh abortion abolition, okay. So he said Tyler and Jones. So Amanda Tyler, you remember her from the uh, Baptist Joint Committee video that we talked about, where she's all about you know bake the cake. If you don't bake the cake for the gay couple, you're threat to religious liberty. That was the argument that she makes. And that's the person telling, uh, and she's cited in this report. Yeah, I think I saw defining uh, Christian nationalism basically as you know un-American and and stuff like that. So she cited not necessarily giving a definition, but very close to giving a definition. And then you have two other anti-Christian nationalists, or three others, if uh, Samuel Perry and Andrew Walker, or is a Whitehead or whatever his name is are paired together. So, you know, they, you basically got three people with definitions against Christian nationalism. And then his response 
was Tyler and Jones aren't the only folks we quote in the study. We tried to mix it up. Example, the quote from Josh Dawes in the American Reformer, which I believe we did. If you report on the study accurate, you will note that. And the only reason I'll note that is because that was his response, but it's not germane to the, my question. Because here's the quote from Josh Dawes that's in the study. Just because someone describes themselves as a Christian nationalist is no cause to start a church to start church discipline proceedings. Similarly, just because someone expresses concern with Christian nationalism doesn't mean they're a woke progressive Christian. Much of the disagreement is between good people who hold different different definitions of the term. That's from Josh Dahl's Christian Nationalism, a premier for the layman in the American Reformer, which is a very think tanky Christian website. Um, and that was not meant disrespectfully at all, uh, by the way. So that was uh, Josh Dahl's, but that's not a definition. Stephen Wolf is also cited in the, ha has a quote, and it's just like a quote. Yeah, I mean, it's... Let, let me show you, like, what I'm looking at. Like, this is just, like, a graphic with a quote. And you see two quotes. One, with Robert Jones defining Christian nationalism as the belief that God intended America to be a new promised land for European Christians. So we have an anti-Christian nationalist definition. And then we have, oh, this is not a reason for church discipline. Are, are these the same thing? Because they're not. I mean, one is literally just like hyper charismatic, like grander that's, you know, goes back to who knows when. I mean, really, you know, Latter-day Saints more or less invented this, but. Yeah, basically, I mean, that's kind of what Mormonism devolved into. Uh, there's another quote defining Christian nationalism in this. Uh Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry's definition of Christian nationalism as a cultural framework that advocates for a particular expression of Christianity, that's pretty key, to be fused with American civil life, civic life, with the government vigorously promoting and preserving this version of Christianity as the principal and undisputed cultural framework. You like how Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry try to say that this isn't really Christianity or this is... We're not like those Christians. You know, like how they try to like weasel that into their definition. I mean, it's pretty much like, you know, minor league Russell Moore's. Yeah, uh, that's what Dan Darling is or used to be. He might be the next Russell Moore. Um, so the report's official definition is as follows. Christian nationalism is a movement advancing a vision of America's past, present and future that excludes people of non-Christian religions and non-Western cultures, Christian nationalists romanticize Christianity's influence on America's development and attributing, uh, attributing the nation's historical provenance to God's special favor towards its rightful inhabitants. So, so I noticed again, with this one, they're trying to link it to white, white supremacy with that last sentence, uh, with the rightful inhabitants. So that's clearly there is a, an a shot. sentence, I believe, about that. Um, but that but, is clearly a shot at the, at, at, I guess, opposition to the Great Replacement. 
Uh, and then he says, none of the thought leaders in Christian nationalism, such as Andrew Torba, uh, Stephen Wolf, define Christian nationalism in this way um, that is specifically hits the United States. I mean, Stephen Wolf's book, or not Stephen Wolf's, Andrew Torba's book was more about parallel economy. And his under his vision, like they're just essentially the world would collapse and then the parallel economy would take over because it's by default the only thing left standing. There's a lot of people that believe that the collapse is inevitable and therefore they can hedge and wait. And I I guess Torba is definitely one of those people. And I think Charles Haywood is also someone else who would fall into that as well. Now, I wouldn't call him a Christian nationalist, but there's so much overlap between our our viewpoints. And but it's basically our starting points that are different. So examples, uh, this is another quote from the uh, report. Examples include the beliefs that America has a special God-ordained purpose. America's culture is fundamentally Christian. Christian values should be solely and explicitly endorsed by the government. Christian symbols and practices should be exclusively featured in public life. A desire to live in a religiously homogenous society and a disdain for multiculturalism. Now, my thoughts are the first one is dead wrong on Christian nationalism. The second one is half true. The latter four are true. Yeah, I mean, and again, special God-ordained purpose. I mean, again, that's such a broad term because and if you're an empire in the world, then you have a God-ordained purpose, whether it's... Right, but they're not talking about God's providence. Yeah. The people who believe... or. The people who believe that are not talking about God's providence. They think that there's some sort of covenant, even though there's not really any evidence that the Jamestown settlement did this, that they, you know, there's no evidence that they made a covenant or tried to make a covenant in Jamestown 1607. And I'm pretty sure the Puritans didn't. I mean, the Mayflower Compact isn't saying that America is a covenant nation with god in the same way old testament israel is why we know they didn't believe that because again this is before dispensationalism they clearly had a different view on covenant theology and honestly i don't know how because a lot of these people who do believe this are probably of the dispensational lane wouldn't you say no yeah i mean they're they're probably often more the charismatic space so I don't know how you mix dispensationalism with the belief that this is America now. I like you're talking you about Charlie Kirk, not like Doug Wilson. Right. Now, are there more Charlie Kirks out there? Maybe. But at the same time, is Charlie Kirk the reason you're doing the study? Or is it more so people like Andrew Torba and Stephen Wolf, whose books sold a lot? Like a lot of people bought his book. So. And again, the same goes with like the Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren uh, Bubert, who again, attends a prosperity church, according to, you know, the research I did. So, I mean, a lot of these people attend those types, those prosperity types churches where you're going to see this notion that America has a special covenant with God that's unique to America. I mean, there's certainly unique blessings that have been given to America, specifically with natural resources, you know, two oceans that border it that are specifically unique. I mean, 
a nation this large would have to be very foolish to not be provident providentially blessed which i mean we're headed there mexico okay i'll stop right there uh because you know mexico went down a hill after the uh american mexican war so i'm gonna stop screen sharing real quick and we can still pull each other no doesn't want to work like that uh so you can see this overlay, right? Yeah. So how important is religion in your life? So they have six categories. Maybe I should actually view the categories first and kind of explain those, give some sort of explainer on these. Uh, so they had six categories. I think Christian nationalist is pretty self-explanatory in these, in this understanding. And then they have Christian nationalist sympathizer. So I'm going to get the uh, thing up. So Christian nationalists uh, amounted to 11% of the sample. 5% self-identified as Christian nationalists. 11% total uh, were categorized as Christian nationalists. And then we had the sympathizers, which is 19%. So under Christian nationalist adherence, it says Christian nationalists adherence strongly couple Christianity and government. These individuals tend to identify as evangelicals and are the most likely to self-identify as Christian nationalist in name. They are also most likely to identify Jewish, black and gay and transvestite Americans as having too much influence in the United States, which is pretty based by the way. Uh, and most likely to endorse dehumanizing language about their political opponents. Let me just be honest with myself. We're going to talk and about those, la those, data points soon enough because i was just like really there, there's not enough uh j-pilled j people on here like we got to get those numbers up yeah those are rookie numbers yeah um christian nationalist sympathizers 19 percent of the sample so this is a total of 30 percent would be in adherence and adjacence as i would call it um christian nationalist sympathizers hold to many of the same positions and propensities as christian nationalist adherence only with less certainty and force this group is only second behind Christian nationalist adherence in proportion that self-identify as Christian nationalist in name or report uh, favorable feelings towards CN. I feel like the, that group is the majority of people that are in the pews that aren't necessarily like diehard involved in politics 24-7. They're probably not on the Twitter sphere. So that's I, your average, you know, they vote for the pro-life candidate every time. I think that's who that refers to. Like those are the sympathizers. Like they don't necessarily have a term for it. It's just, yeah, they vote for the pro-life candidate because so you know, that's, that's then their we have issue. The Christian spectators. These people are on the sidelines politically is basically what this is saying. Christian spectators are more likely to view more likely than the average American to be Christian, sympathetic towards traditional Christian views and visit church and pray. Meanwhile, they are less likely to be, to pol engage politically in and in their community. So these people are basically the uh, pietists, I guess. I mean, my take on that was they're the go along to get along. So basically, if you combine the sympathizers with the, the adherents, with the spectators, you have 48% or something like that. So you basically, you know, you just need a couple more of those undecideds and you have a majority. But the spectators seem like they'll just go along to get along. They're normies. Yes. But I don't think they're 
they're serious. So here's where we got Jenna Ellis. I would put her in this category, pluralistic believers. 19% of the sample, so equal with the sympathizers. While more religious than the average American, pluralistic believers oppose an exclusive government endorsement of Christianity. Meanwhile, they are warm towards symbols of faith, of multiple faith traditions in public life and towards the notion that faith makes for better citizens. While religious, they value tolerance and pluralism more than others. So that's Jenna Ellis. Yeah, and probably a little bit, maybe a little bit more of an elitist mentality. I think this would, would be Russell Moore. Yeah, like they they think they have their degree. They think they probably think their degrees make them better citizens. Yeah, they they probably think that uh, for sure. Um, this is your big Eva one. They're the pluralistic believers. This is how they would be basically be categorized. And then we got zealous separationist. Now keep in mind. The first five that we're going to read are in order from most based to most liberal. I don't know if you uh, caught the pattern there. Or maybe in the the sixth one is even more liberal, but I'm not sure. I don't know if number five is more liberal than six, but I kind of think it is. Number six, zealous separationist, 17%. Zealous separationists strongly oppose the coming of church and state. This group is least favorable towards religious groups and the most and most disagree that faith makes for better citizens. They are generally irreligious and politically liberal. And then the undecideds, undecideds frequently responded neither agree or disagree to questions about religion and society. They are ambivalent or undecided about these questions. That's 16%. So these are basically the religious nuns. Yeah. So now um, let's get to uh, some graphs, some charts. So 11% are categorized as Christian nationalist, but only 5% self-identify. So chart number one, which is figure three, is how important is religion in your life and the Christian nationalist adherence clearly went out on the very important. Now the Christian nationalist sympathizers edge them out when it's, when you add in very important and somewhat important, they get the edge on that. But the very important, I think is the key. Yeah. I mean, you're what at 65 ish percent, very important. And then you're at over 75% with somewhat. And then the zealous separationists are like the worst at this. So. Uh, I like this comment by his servant S. Uh, romanticize. You mean look at the facts and the great nation that was created by God's grace? Yeah, oh, you you that's, romantic. That's such a, yeah, such a romantic. And then the same Riza says political or I'm a pro-life single issue voter and many such cases of that. Um, I wonder how many of them would be viewed as spectators or adherents. So I think a lot of those people are the sympathizers. They just don't have a hard core term for it. So that's the first. So we're measuring religiosity right now. Aside from weddings and funerals, how often do you attend religious services? And again, the Christian nationalist adherents topple this one on 
more than once a week and once a week. So weekly church attendance. Weekly church attendance. 50%. At 50%. Which is higher than the sympathizers, who is just under 50%, not far behind. The spectators are pretty low, actually. So less than 25%. Probably so just I get it. over I get that 15%. a lot of nominal believers might be in the spectators. Pluralistic believers... Like Jenna Ellis appears to be, you know, uh, just around 15% or maybe, you know, 20%. Uh, it's hard to measure when they just got, you know, 25 increments. And then, the, you know, the zealous separationists are like 1% uh, or not 1%. 1% if you maybe just like more than once a week. They might be under 10%. Six weekly. 6.66. Yeah. Sounds like a right number, uh, which is the even fact less is than the, the undecided. have more weekly church attendance than I know because you'd think that the zealous separationists would be all the universal Unitarians and stuff. Uh, so you would think, but not the case. So the religiosity of Christian nationalists is higher. Now, is this not a, a white pill for the Christian nationalists? Like, isn't this like telling us how? You know, this is a study that hates us, but it's telling us how awesome we are. Basically. I mean, it's basically saying that those most, most, those that actually attend churches weekly are the, and or even multiple times a week are the most likely to adhere to this ideology. So then we got, would you describe yourself as a born again believer or born again or evangelical Christian or not? So born again is a way that pollsters like to vet religious beliefs because people self-identify as christian but they might not self-identify as born again which is a good way to you know get the serious people so 71 percent identify as born again christian uh in the christian nationalist adherence 60 percent for the sympathizers and 35% for the spectators, they are, again, 65-35 split there. The pluralistic belie believers are 85% not born again, 15% born again. And then, yeah, it's pretty bad numbers. Uh, I wonder how much of that is because of a lot of mainline, because mainline wouldn't would probably not consider themselves evangelical like that Lutheran. I feel like the undecideds are more reasonable than the pluralistic and the obviously like a, the zealots, the zealous as well, but and obviously if they have like Catholics in here, then they're not going to. They probably wouldn't identify evangelical. Yeah, I, which is I, why I didn't quite like that question as much as some of the others. It, it's a standard poll question, though. Yeah. So. What they're basically showing is that the Christian nationalist adherents are the most serious Christian demographic that they can identify. Okay. Okay, that's a W, and yet that's a bad thing. The study's going to conclude that that's a bad thing. So what is your present religion? So this is where we're getting to, you know, who are the Christian nationalists and what do they identify as? Protestant, which nears 40%. Uh, so it's like, what, 40% of Protestants are self-identifying? Or I'm not as sure on how to view this, how to view this data, because 
it all has to add up a hundred percent, right? I think it does. So, I mean, 40% of that 11% are Protestants, I think. So, okay. That makes sense. So it adds up to a hundred percent within each column, but you see that, you know, the Christian nationalist adherents, most of them identify as Protestant or plurality of which then it's Roman Catholics, a pretty small number. I was actually shocked that uh, other Christian is higher, substantially higher than Roman Catholic and even other religions, which I'm a little shocked at. Like, what are the other religions? Is this where Mormons come in? And then you have like agnostics at 5% and then spiritual, but not religious, which you hate to see that term. So, I mean, I don't necessarily I know how to interpret that data. I mean, I think that's just you had a couple people in the sample. Wait, or is it a bunch of the trad orthos? You know, are, are they actually uh, being represented in the study as though that they exist in a critical mass? Because I don't believe they do. I think it's just an online LARP, but it's not the worst online LARP, but they just act like it's true in real life, even though. Eastern Orthodox vote Democrat just as much as Catholics do. So it's kind of a myth, but it's maybe reflected in this poll. I don't know what other Christian falls into or independent fundamental Baptist. And we don't have church history here. We just have the Bible. Is that what other Christian would fall into? I I don't know. I don't know if that's what that stuff in the bottom saying, uh, because it says Mormon, Eastern, or Greek Orthodox, or Christian, other than above. Okay, so they... That might be the other Christian. So they would include Mormons with other Christian. I don't... I Again, I don't... So they like include that. Mormons in that, which is kind of weird. That, again, that's a flaw in the data. I think Mormons should have probably been separated, but... I also think, you know, they should be vetting people if they're Christian before accounting them as Christian nationalist. But they wanted to see whether the Christian nationalists were actually religious or not. And that's what the study wanted to see. Uh, and that's what the study clearly shows. So now we have a little bit more. Uh, uh, is this really the one I wanted to show you? Oh, man, this is the red pill. But we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, here, here's where we start talking about knowing what time it is and the Christian nationalist adherents know what time it is the most, according to this study, how strongly do you agree or disagree with the following statement? Efforts to increase diversity almost always come at the expense of people like me and the Christian nationalist adherents completely are most on board with this that's just under that's just under what under three-fourths because it might not be quite 75 percent. not quite 75 percent, but they also have the neither agree nor disagree in the middle of the spectrum so it's kind of hard like half of them would break either way if you had to force them so it's a flawed bar graph that they're showing here because it has the undecideds, like you can yeah. see some of these groups are very undecided, like the Christian spectators are very undecided. And somehow the undecideds are 
very undecided. Maybe it was a bad name for him, but uh, you you see that the Christian nationalists are most decided on this issue, and it's not even close. Sympathizers in second place. Everything else is very distant in third place. I'm actually surprised that pluralistic believers is as high as it is, but well, pluralistic they are almost double disagreeing than they are agreeing. Well, pluralistic believers to me strike me as the type again that that is your big Eva. They want to appeal to the zealous separationist, so they kind of lag behind them. You know, in a lot of the statistics. Yeah, I mean, half of the pluralistic believers disagreed with the statement outright, and maybe a third of the zealous separationists disagreed with the state, or agreed or did not agree. So, sorry, twice as many disagreed uh, with that statement than any other answer. So you see, but with the Christian nationalist adherents, you could combine the disagree and the neither agree nor agree. And it's still like one third of the agree at the end of the day, because that many, you know, know what time it is on this issue. This is about wokeness. And this question is measuring wokeness. Wokeness, at least of white people. So if you're white and you answered, you know, agree then you're you kind of know what time it is uh but if you answer disagree you know you hate yourself my view on that uh this is another know what time it is question would you say that opposite political party are a serious threat to the united states and its people so we have three questions along these same lines. Opposite political party are not just worse politics, they're downright evil. And then many opposite political party lack traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals. <laughs> Maybe demons might be more accurate. I don't want no, to be uh, accused of, you know, No, if you see if you see some of this Walmart like those mass uh uh, let's just say that a lot of those uh, mobs that steal things in certain cities of the United States, one might say it is very animal. Who's pooping behavior. on the streets in San Francisco? Are those, you know, it's like yeah, a dog. Democrats right? are just animals out there. For choosing animals in the animal kingdom, that's like a dog pooping on the pooping on a walk. And you know, and they and owners, dog owners, you know, which are humans, have the bags to pick up the poop ideally so i mean right. the fact that you don't even pick it up is animalistic one might say or bury it so i mean i think it's very true uh i, I mean i would answer agree to every one of these questions and that's viewed as a bad thing that Christian nationalists are more likely to agree. You also see that the uh, separationists, the zealous separationists, are also inclined to believe that the other side is evil. So you got some people that realize that politics is kind of a game and the Christian spectators are the most, and actually, and the undecideds, are the most on the fence just watching the other two sides. Now, the sympathizers... Again, they would probably also agree to some degree, or yeah, you know, again, they're 
in third place as far as agreeing that the other side's a threat. Uh, this changes when you say that the, when you apply, they're not just a threat to the United States, they're downright evil. So this is about saying that, you know, let's just be real about Democrats, that they have no redeeming qualities and that they're an irredeemably evil party. Yeah, it's over 50%. It is maybe sixty percent. Yeah, we're talking like two thirds of you know, we're talking two thirds of Christian nationalist adherents believe that let's just say Democrats are downright evil. That's called knowing what time it is. That that's huge, and again, how can you be a Christian and not see that they are worse than the Nazis? I don't think that's necessarily close. So that's on the second question. And again, you see the the pluralistic believers are the ones that kind of see the good in everyone, I guess. So they're actually even worse than the spectators once again. And then many uh, opposite political party, you know, behave like animals. And I just think that's funny. The Christian nationalists like, yeah, and in, the, in this poll and I the mean, sympathizers aren't as far behind we got video evidence and the undecideds are like very undecided on this one and then the separationists decide to disagree a little bit harder but you see the sympathizers in second place on agreeing with that statement so this let's talk about what time it is and and that's kind of what this section's all about so this is another graph and it's like the Christian nationalists and adherents and sympathizers and how they relate to the non. And this is about too much influence in society. So here you have, uh, let's say homosexuals and transvestites, 57% or does that say 67? 50. 57% say, too much influence in society. I mean, that's not enough. That's that's pretty low, actually. It should be higher. Like, come on, guys. We got to pump the numbers up. Um, and that, but you see, the non-Christian nationalist, twenty-six percent, which is a minority. Jews, thirteen percent. Yeah, Christian that's where I'm just like we need to get those sympathizers. Uh, believe that they have too much influence in society. That's opposed to nine percent of the non-Christian nationalist. But, but the, that's a minority of both camps. Who are the people that, that? Who are the people that think they have too little? Yeah, I don't know how you live in America and think Jews have too little influence in America. You could say they have just the right amount or whatever, but I don't know how you come to the conclusion that they have too little influence. Uh, I don't know how you would have come to that conclusion with uh, gays either. Or, you know, uh, I would also put a lot. Oh, even Muslims or women. <laughs> how how only fourteen percent of Christian nationalists slash sympathizers say that women only have women have too yeah. only fourteen percent said too much. Which again, that's kind of an astronomically low number. Uh, the only thing lower is uh, people who live in rural areas, which seems to be a group championed by Christian nationalists and poor people at 9%. Because you would think the, much power. the adherents, maybe it's the sympathizers that are dri driving the numbers down, but 
the you think the adherents would be like, yeah, we don't want Muslims to have any influence in society. So therefore, they ha having no influence is just the right amount of influence. And you see that in the twenty two percent, or they could just be realistically, they all there's not really there's not a Muslim president or governor or something like that. So they're at twenty two percent to seven percent in the non Christian nationalist side. Blacks, 27% said too much influence. It's like they watch, you know, they turn on TV and see a commercial or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, like a lot of, even like. Maryland is a black governor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mar <laughs> like Maryland, yeah. A certain group has too much influence and that influence is often used for, that has negative consequences on their own communities. Like Baltimore has had like three black, three or four black mayors in a row. That have all led the city in disarray. Oh yeah, they. they... But yeah. it's the white people's fault because of Freddie Gray. Every single time. Uh, let's see, whites. So nineteen percent said whites of Christian nationalists said whites had too much influence in society. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> uh, and then that's opposed to twenty nine percent in the opposite camp. So you see the wokeness in the other side. Uh, yeah, and, and that's twenty-seven percent, and that's still a you need to get those numbers up as far as the too little influence on both. How, how is how how do people say that men have too much influence in society? Well, the obviously the other side that makes sense. I uh, yeah, yeah, the non-Christian nationalists saying that men have too much influence in society makes sense. I don't I know don't, why the Christian nationalists or the sympathizers. I don't know if that's where the sympathizers too much influence. That's I mean, probably where the sympathizers go in because they're probably more soft complementarian or soft complementarian. They're now, not keep in mind, going back to the whites, majority more Christian nationalists said that and sympathizers said that whites had too little influence in society than too much. I just don't understand how do you come to the conclusion too much. Uh, and then women like how are you saying women have too little influence in society? How are you a Christian nationalist and think thirty and at thirty six percent think women have too little influence? No, that we're in this mess because we gave women influence in the political sphere. Again, it goes back to where are the men? Well, yeah, I mean, when half name the population, anything that could have happened in America without any liberal policy that could have been enacted in the last uh, ten years that could not have been done without women voting for democrats i mean the only the only two would be the federal reserve and the wartime industry like those are the two okay women don't get the blame for that because they pre-exist the 19th amendment fair enough fair Every, enough you know, everything else uh let's see conservatives uh we already did women uh conservatives have two most of them at 45 to 13 percent say conservatives have two little influence in society moderates too little influence i don't understand I why think would you have... what is a moderate uh it's just a soft so, liberal no uh, but a moderate is like, like a 19 maybe? no moderate is a 1980s radical democrat like let's just be honest with that like yeah. if, okay if you believe in gay marriage you're already to the left of like a 1980s democrat a 1990s democrat like you're you're a radical democrat in any other decade a early 2000s Democrat? No, because I a think... Barack the, Obama, 2008? No, yeah, the, no, but the Barack Obama, 2008, was like still anti-gay marriage. Even though, just saying, there's a suspicious amount of, you know, black gay dudes in Detroit, not Detroit, 
in Chicago that went to a certain church that was affiliated with a certain former president that died in the month of December 2007. Oh, very suspicious. And a top chef. So, and the chef died. Yeah. He, He was a prolific swimmer, but died drowning or something. So again, I mean, who thinks moderates have too little influence? Yeah, that's insane. Well, liberals too much influence was 57 to 8 on the Christian nationalist side. That's pretty good. Uh, people who live in cities, 35 to 13 on the that Christian nationalist side. That should be higher. That should be higher. Because, again, all that green energy stuff that's coming from the cities. You know, the people that live in the cities want to tell you that live in the country how to live, like that meme, that paradigm. So at 8%, speaking of country, 8% said the rural rurals have too much influence and 57 percent said they had too little so again anything in between any other numbers since these don't add up to 100 is that they have just the right amount of influence right uh and then evangelical christians 10 percent said too much influence and then 42 percent said not enough shouldn't that be higher as well uh but yeah i, I don't, don't know again, why you're calling know. yourself a christian nationalist adherent or even sympathizer but you'd say that's too much are you missing the purpose of the movement and maybe it's the same that are like the spiritual yeah i I don't know how that that makes up eight percent i'm not sure how you recognize these convictions uh reconcile these views uh his servant s says uh, moderate is someone with no convictions i again i think i agree with that yeah but Uh, it's it's probably the centrist is I think being a centrist is worse than being a moderate because cent- being a centrist implies you have some sort of like moral indignation about the extremes on either side. So yeah. you're even worse because you think you're smart. You're like the midwit. You're the midwit that, but that embodies the Hegelian dialect. Right. Uh, rich people. I think everyone was kind of in bed on that one. Uh, Poor people, again, reverse was true for that. Uh, Not much disagreement to be found there. Although twice as many Christian nationalists and sympathizers were saying poor people had too much influence, 9% to 4%. But uh, we go to corporations, Christian nationalists and adherents and sympathizers again say that uh, corporations have too much influence, which is higher than the rest. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like so what happened to this, liberals hating corporations? I think yeah. this is you know normie Republicans that are diluting that side. Yeah, the pluralistic, like the Jenna Ellis types that yes, you know, that say corporations are people too, and they deserve Disney all deserves all the rights that they had in Florida. And then we have tech companies, clear uh you know, Christian nationalists clearly are higher on that one. But even the non Christian nationalists are pretty high on that one. But who's going to say that tech companies have too little influence in America? And then we have the media at 73%. Christian nationalists are at 73%. And then the normies, I guess, non-Christian nationalists are 58 So a good so, percentage of them, the difference being that they might think there's not enough truth, like the fake news, oh, conspiracy theorists and like the mainstream media doesn't have enough control is might be their logic. Yeah, so these aren't exactly the most positive numbers, but I think these are numbers we can work with. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of improvements. Again, I don't know how, you know, the second category 
is not higher. When I don't know how op- the women those... question was so low. <laughs> yeah, I, that I, I you want to bang your head into a wall with uh, women have too little influence in society. Thirty six percent. No, you need enough yeah. education. Like so, look at some voter demographic polls. Yeah. And maybe not everyone does that for fun. So here's another one. Profile of a Christian nationalist. 58% like identify as male, 46% female, uh, compared to 48% male and 51% female for the rest of the sample. And then we had 62% report being married, which is you know, higher than the 49% for the rest of the sample. Uh, and then 70% identify as non-white Hispanic versus 64% of the rest of the sample. So disproportionately married white male. Now, my thoughts when I saw this, it's like, eh, lone bulwark against moral insanity. Oh, That was what I thought when I read that. Married, so you're going to get called racist by some of these moralistic believers. White, married white people, white evangelicals, you know, basically the most conservative demographic, the people that the Republicans should be appealing to, like first and foremost. Right. And 48% report being interested in government, society, and public affairs most of the time compared to 33%. So these people are more engaged citizens. 76% report their religion as some sort of form of Christianity, uh, with much of the remainder, 17%, concentrated among what would typically be described as non-religious or nuns. Among the rest of the sample, 53% identify as Christian and 40% as non-religious. Oh, shocked by this. Uh, your thoughts on the... You know, the 24% that don't identify as Christian in Christian nationalism. Which is substantially Catholic lower. Again, I think that's where you get like Catholics and how other certain sects might not view themselves as born again or evangelical. I don't know what a Catholic would say to that answer. Identifying as Christian. The uh, born again was like 71%. So like 5% trade off or something. So that's why that's where I might wonder whether it's just how certain denominations would answer that question. Like, I don't know what a trad Catholic would say to that. They would identify as Christian. Yeah, they would. So they would be in the 76%. I don't know how you identify as a Christian nationalist, but you don't identify as a Christian. Uh, I mean, that's weird. That, that's weird. Um, 71% self-report being a uh, born-again evangelical Christian, like I said, 71%. I, I just remember that from earlier. I didn't even read it when it was right in front of me. Uh, and then adherents are less likely to have a household income over 120000 a year. I mean, that a lot of that could just 7. be 7.5% versus 12.1%. A lot of slightly, that. That could just be what state that they're in. So there is a lot more poverty that's associated with this, I guess. Yeah, Slightly it, more likely to be making less than $40,000 a year. 43% versus 41%. I mean, that's so the rest of the sample. I mean, that, that's, that, that's Yeah, it is marginal. Insignificant difference. And adherence exhibits similar levels of education as the rest of the sample. 
with 26% attending at least uh, four-year degree. Okay, so 26% versus 11, 31%. That's actually more of a substantial decrease than the other one, but similar levels, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's more likely to be working class or blue collar. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's, not, probably, that's an unsurprising finding. I mean, probably if you're looking at that income that income data, they probably live, they don't live in the bi-coastal elitist states that have higher income requirements and standard for a basic standard of living. Because I mean, you know, I had the average income data forever on standby where, you know, like Maryland's average income is 69,000 and then other states are much lower. Like I think Wyoming might be. Wyoming's probably like forty to fifty thousand, so it's like over ten thousand dollars less than Maryland's, and then Massachusetts is like seventy six thousand for average income. So I mean, that's there's a huge disparity, but in, in the average income of various states. Yeah, and you hate to see that. Uh, So that appears to be the last of the overlays that I have. Uh, if we want to go back to the article, uh, which isn't published right now, but it will be when this goes, you know, seven o'clock on Friday. Uh, so my concluding analysis, actually, I actually want to talk more about uh, another quote from the thing. Additionally, Christian nationalists were most likely to find the Democrat Party to be irredeemably evil. This finding is used to justify the view that Christian nationalism is a threat. And you see that repeatedly throughout the study that Christian nationalism is a threat to democracy, democracy. Uh, and here's a quote. CNR adherents support a variety of changes to America's society or governance that may harm others or run counter to America's pluralistic democ democratic traditions. Case in point, 89% simultaneously believe that a Christian Christianity reflects the nation's true culture. B, uh, Christians need more influence over government. And C, the decline of Christianity in America is a problem. Given that the Democracy Fund was involved in the report this conclusion is unsurprising so they view that as a threat because they view america primarily as a democracy a democracy as opposed to you know uh, a people and a place they don't know what a nation is so your thoughts on that i mean i mean it's it's it, it it does go down to the fact that a lot of their data I think is accurate, but obviously they have the democracy fund and you know this liberal dark money is funding it, and they're just a bunch of you know liberal sellouts that are there to essentially castigate Christian nationalism as a threat. That, I mean that's what they're doing this entire study for. So obviously, and again the whole blood, soil, you know, people in place make a nation, which they don't believe because multiculturalism is good in their eyes. Yeah, and you saw that in uh, John Dunlap, who was, Dunwell, sorry, who was the punching bag online for the satanic statue. Other than Jenna Ellis, it was this representative of Iowa 
and I who got the crucifixion, who got his theology on the crucifixion wrong by stating that Satan was happy when Jesus died on the cross. So very errant theology that he espoused. Yeah, I mean, it's as though he didn't watch The Passion with Mel Gibson. So going back to the uh, final uh, analysis that I give, this was my last uh, two cents on the issue, but let me just give a call for last questions in the chat. so my concluding analysis is this. The number 5% self-identifying and 11% categorically uh, Christian nationalists might be an accurate estimate, but between the adherents and the sympathizers, a better definition and line of questioning could make the study more reliable. Instead, this neighborly faith study is a liberal screed against Christian nationalism that is unintentionally a ringing endorsement with its findings. I mean, it's kind that's of that's my hot take. That's that's my money line on this. I mean, as I like to say, numbers don't lie, but people do. So, you know, I kind of like, okay, the 5% and the 11% are probably accurate numbers. The numbers don't lie, but obviously the people that wrote the study do. Yeah. I'm surprised so, they weren't more on the nose with the white in white Christian. Nat- like, I'm surprised they didn't weren't more on the nose in that direction. Yeah, but they could they have did, been more. They given, didn't get their hand in that way, but they weren't as on the note as on the nose as they might have been on like the earlier pages. So, again, if they'd use an actual definition of Christianity rather than whatever they ran with here, that's basically you know David Barton or whatever, uh, they probably would have come around to the, about the same numbers, but with different math. That's my hypothesis. But the fact that they didn't make the study a little bit less reliable because it doesn't actually it doesn't accurately define Christian nationalism as it is commonly understood or used. It defines it in the way that the critics define it, but they aren't accurate in their definition of it because they haven't done the reading. Let's just be real. So they've done reading of people like, you know, Paul Miller and Samuel Perry, you know, and and gay books like that that didn't sell anything. And I'm a little bit privy to the sales data on that. But Stephen Wolf's book and Andrew Torba's book were the huge sellers in this category. Paul Miller's book didn't sell, you know, diddly squat. It might barely count as a hit. Because I, I think the number that constitutes a hit book is like 1,780 copies. But with Big Eva backing it, it you know, can it even get to 3,000? Whereas, you know, uh, Stephen Wolf got at least 10 times that just in one format, not including like ebook or audio or whatever. So they didn't do the reading. They didn't... Uh, particularly want to use the adherence definitions they just instead use their own and that's a huge flaw in the reliability of the study however part of reliability means you do the same study again and you'll get the same results and i think they would get the same results if they did it again but i i think this is encouraging because at the end of the day 
this was an unintentional ringing endorsement of Christian nationalism. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to also, I mean, I'd like to see them fear monger if they were to ask more policy specific questions, like moratorium on immigration or abortion. Yeah, abortion, abolition, uh, maybe banning of uh, pornography and just start like doing policy type questions and just see how, oh no, they want to, they want to take away uh, mind geeks uh, profitability in the United States. Yes. They want to hurt all those, you know, uh, OF models from making an income. You can say OnlyFans. Uh, I don't know if you can. I, On YouTube, yeah, it's no. the abortion word you can't say. No. Or risk demonetizing, but we've already said it a bunch. Um, but yeah. Uh, did you hear that Twitch reverse their policy on artistic nudity? The one they the one that they relaxed on they reversed course on that or they i think they have i think i saw that they had probably a bunch of the people that also have only fans that do twitch uh started taking i mean the fact is that they were going to turn twitch into a massive you know soft core porn site uh more like chatterbait that certain virginia but other streaming like their competitors and the reason why i I've gone on these sites is because I'm using Restream and they have a bunch of websites you can stream to. So I kind of like look up these websites and like quite a few of these are just like strip, you know, uh, they're not like full nude or whatever or whatever, but like this is clearly, yeah, in that direction is like, I'm not streaming on here, but yeah, they have a bunch of websites and the ones that aren't Chinese, I look at to see if, you know, this is somewhere where we can build a streaming audience. Because, you know, it ain't working out that well on Twitch. But Rumble is pretty good for streaming. Um, Shout out to the people watching on Rumble. But anyway, uh, we don't have any questions in the last call. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Uh, If you like the stream, don't forget to hit that like button. That helps with the magical YouTube algorithms. But the best thing you can do is subscribe to the channel, to the podcast, if you are new. And you can support our work over at Evangelical Dark Web dot org slash join us a link in the description below that's our patreon like system that gives you access to even more content that we do but uh like i said least you can do is like and subscribe that's the most you can do is support the work there um anyway have a blessed day we will catch you on the next one which will be our year end edition i think it'll be next wednesday and not next thursday so wednesday the 27th I think it's going to be, or perhaps Tuesday to 26th. We'll see. Now, 27th. Um, But that's when that's going to be. Uh, That's going to be a fun stream. We're going to talk about the year-end awards called the Evas. we got the Jollies. we got the Evas, which are way better than the Grammys and the Oscars. So tune in for that. We'll do the top 10 stories of the year, which is going to be very hard to narrow down. I'm just saying it's very hard to narrow that down, but I'm going to try and, but sign up for evangelicaldarkweb.org, at least a free newsletter and you'll get some Christmas hot takes over the weekend. So have a blessed day and we will catch you on the next one.